Welcome to another installment of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. In this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and the life challenges of our next guest, who I know you're going to love. This next guy has been at the Comedy Store since 1976, almost the beginning. You can catch him in the Comedy Store tonight, starring Argus Hamilton. That might be a giveaway as to who the guest is. And uh, um, he has got um, he writes for syndicated columns all across the country. He's an amazing staple here at the Comedy Store on Sunset Boulevard. Welcome, Argus. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Bob, for having me. Nice to be here. It's so good to see you. You have, I mean, it's easy to see you because you're here almost every single night. Uh, since the Carter administration. Since the Carter administration. <laughs> okay, that's right. That's He got elected in... Well, like all people in Hollywood, I lie about my age. 76 was still the Ford administration. Oh, okay. There, <laughs> there you go. That's right. That's right. I, li- I had to lie by one president so you won't think I'm in my 60s. That's right. Well, at least you didn't say Abraham Lincoln or like Roosevelt. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's... But we wouldn't... So you've been... Yeah. You've been... That's right. Much- There's a rumor that... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Lincoln were more than just friends. I've heard that. You know, that's uh, well, it makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> so. in, this, in this era of busting Supreme Court justices, exactly. Best sexual peccadillo. Oh, no, man. Crazy times. It is. It's crazy. So, so you, you know, I want to say real quick yeah. that if the accusers uh, against Kavanaugh turns mm-hmm. out to be credible, he may be forced to give up his Supreme Court nomination and settle for the presidency. <laughs> There you go. That's almost scary. <laughs> You're probably and par for the course. And par for the course. Oh my God. So let me ask you this. So you're from Oklahoma. Yeah. And um, you. So what brought you out to L.A. after you finished school? Like, did you always think you were going to be a stand-up comic, or did you want to be an accountant like a lot of us? No. Uh, I'm the son, grandson, and great grandson of Methodist ministers. Uh oh. And. Uh, a long line of Hamiltons going back to a lot of dukedoms back in England. Okay. And so money has just never been an issue with me at right. all. So stand-up comedy always was. Right. Uh, I just, I, I lacked the preacher's gene, but I watched, growing up, I'd watch Jack Parr and Johnny Carson's monologue every night on TV before having to go to bed. And then the next morning at school, I'd switch their jokes you know, and, and, and get all the laughs and, and, get, oh, perfect. and get my affirmation from the girls, which is all I've ever That's all for. you wanted. Yeah. That's, now, so you're a preacher's son. Uh-huh. Sam Kinison was a preacher's son, right? That's right. So now you, you knew Sam. Yes, very well. Did you guys ever compare notes about growing up with the... Well, Sam uh, was a Pentecostal preacher's oh. son, and that is a sort of a low church Protestant, high energy participation oh, yeah. type of, of Protestantism. Right. While Methodism and, and the Episcopal Church, they're the daughters of the Church of England. Much more it's, practical. It's, uh, more establishment, <laughs> let's put it that way. Okay. And, uh, uh, for instance, I'm very active at All Saints Episcopal Church in Beverly Hills here. Okay. And for, for communion, we offer you a wine list. Oh, there you go. That's the way to go. I like it. Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm hanging out at the one where it's just the wine in a box. So we, uh, That's very, very low church. Very low church. <laughs> Very low church. So you, so you always knew you wanted to be a comic. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I started out doing all my jokes in, this, in high school, junior high, and then when I got to the University of Oklahoma, Bob, I became a real campus personality during the Watergate era. Uh, we had uh, University of Oklahoma at the time. We had a twenty-five thousand circulation newspaper on campus, the Oklahoma Daily, 
and for maybe 10 semesters, I had a column of jokes on, on the Watergate era news oh, wow. at that time. And I also hosted campus shows on Campus Corner every Thursday, told jokes, trivia, hosted the Trivia Bowl on campus, giving out pictures of free beer for answers to trivia questions, and uh, was active in cheerleading. And uh, I, Everybody on campus knew me back there. And so one night I was sitting in the ATO, the Alpha Tau Omega living room, uh, watching The Tonight Show with, with my fraternity brothers. And Sammy Davis Jr. happened to be Johnny's guest that night. Oh, wow. And Sammy said, Johnny, you know, we've got this brand new kid from this brand new club called the Comedy Store on the Sunset Strip. And this kid, I, I saw him and uh, I recommended him. You took my word. Let's bring him out and watch him perform. And it was the great Freddie Prinze. Oh, wow. And Freddie Prinze came out and just blistered, knocked down the room. Johnny took him over, sat him down, and he talked about this new place called the Comedy Store in Hollywood. And all that time, I thought, Bob, that I was going to have to go to New York and freeze to become oh. a comedian. <laughs> and here it was, Los Angeles Sunset Strip. I was going to get to go to L.A. instead of New York. And that was my big, big deal. That is so cool. So let me ask you this. When you went to a University of Oklahoma, was that to study stand-up comedy? Or was that a backup plan, just in case? Or Well, uh, the, uh, the Alpha Tall Omega house, every house had an identity, just like you would, like the movie Animal House. Right, right, right. And uh, the Beta Theta Pies were the uh, hard-ass Baptists. The SAEs were the, the future Betty Ford uh, Club. Yeah, exactly. Okay. The Delta Tall Deltas were the athletes. And the ATOs, we were the well-dressed comedians. Okay. And we really were a comedian's house. And uh, we drank hard. We played bridge. Uh, sometimes later on in, in our in campus, we would smoke pot and go out and chase tornadoes, uh -oh. and uh, we, we had a ball. We really yeah. did, but we kept each other sharp. It was a very witty house, That's and, and I was their standard bearer. I, I was the best-known guy on campus that wasn't a football player, and wow. that, that was back when we had All-Americans like the Selman brothers, Jack Mildren, Joe Washington, Joe Wiley. It was Great, great. We were national champions for two straight years. Yeah, that's. I can't say that about the University of Tennessee. <laughs> oh, we. I love the balls growing up. I do. I love the ball. My one of my favorite teams was the 68, 67, 68 Tennessee Volunteers. Yeah. Do you remember them? I was. I was. I was still. In diapers, I think. Oh, Not really? Quite. Well, I was in diapers until I was like twelve. Yeah. So. Walter Chadwick, Dewey Warren, uh, uh, Charlie Fulton, Bob Johnson. Yeah. Great, great. Tennessee team. We beat them in the Orange Bowl. Uh, yep. Yeah, a lot of people are beating them these days. <laughs> so let me ask you this: Did you went? So you grew up um, in a, uh, a minister's house, um, and you didn't worry about money. No. But what did your what did your parents? Is there anything that they taught you, or are there any beliefs about money that you have now, or is it just live in the moment? God will provide, or like, yeah. What's your what's your? Well, I'll. I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I don't know if it's. Uh, I, I'm certainly an Anglican uh, more than anything, mm -hmm. and uh, and my life is certainly a partnership with God because I'll be 32 years sober in November. Cool. Okay. And uh, the founders of of AA happen to be Episcopalians as well. Oh, okay. And so there's an easy grace component to it, but as long as you make your amends and you're out there helping people, all the doors open to you. Right. Okay. In other words, as long as somebody knows my secrets, in this case, my sponsor, they know my fears, they know my resentments, they know my 
uh, you know, sex inventory, whatever's going on in my life, as long as somebody knows my secrets, I'm connected to this planet. I'm getting the money. And then as long as I've made all my amends and I'm square with everybody, I stay high by helping others. Right. And when I help others, for some reason, all the gates of plenitude open up to me, and that includes money and financial opportunities. I've never starved. Uh, I've never been hungry here in Los Angeles. And well, that's, I, a, that's, that, cool. that's hard sometimes. Yeah. Well, sometimes it was down to peanut butter and Coors. But. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, but you got to get the Coors. Yeah, had, had, had to, you got to wash down that peanut butter, that's man. That's right. Especially you when it. you're 25 years old, bulletproof and irresistible. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. And uh, now maybe that's funny when you just said that. It reminded me that um, I believe that there used to be women of the night that used to cruise the boulevard. Yes. In, and – Right, because it was this wasn't a city at the time. That's right. Uh, West Hollywood, up until 1981 or 82, was just part of L.A. County, and that meant it was patrolled by county sheriffs, and they didn't want to have anything to do with all the hookers that were walking up and down between La Brea and Doheny every single night. And I'm telling you, there were hundreds and hundreds of them. That's what's hard wow. to believe right now. Yeah, that is. Hard. And. Uh, uh, they would walk by the comedy store. Now, I was over at Westwood Comedy Store at the time, but the comedy store doormen like Harris Pete and Johnny Witherspoon, they would just you know be happy and cheerful, and they all knew each other by name, and right. we walked by we're like regular family every night. And uh, they, they did a thriving business. The, the, the sheriffs turned their back on the whole thing. Right. And uh, But when AIDS arrived, it, it, it just it wiped it out completely. Yeah. That's what, that's but, what happened. Yeah, it puts a chill in the room. Yeah, it did. It did. <laughs> yeah, made, turned everybody into Freddy cats, Mister. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that and so you were at the Westwood Club. Yeah. How long was the Westwood Club open? Mitzi built it in '75, the year before I got here. Okay. And uh, it had been uh, the place to go in the early to mid '60s uh, during the band the bomb pre hippie era, before mm -hmm. the hippie era. It's where all the folk singers. were. Were Peter, Paul, and Mary, right. uh, the New Christy Minstrels. The New Christy Minstrels uh, head guy, Randy Sparks, was the one who founded that club. It was called Leadbetters. Oh, okay. And then comedian Denny Johnston is the only one who goes back that far. And he was there at Leadbetters. And it's where all these great songs and stuff from about 1961 to 64, till oh. the Beatles arrived, that's where all those protest songs, Ban the Bomb, Puff the Magic Dragon, right. uh, Today, all these great you know songs came from that era. It was the, it was the post hip pre hippie era, but it was a that was a two hundred thirty seat room with brick walls and uh, perfect acoustics. And what would happen, Bob, is that Mitzi would take us kids right off of open mic night, and she would look at us through charisma, not the number of laughs we got, but right. how, what kind of stage presence we had. And she would look at us, and in my year, she sent over my pledge class to Westwood to develop, just off our stage presence and maybe two or three jokes. Yeah. And that pledge class included me, Robin Williams, Michael Keaton, Marshall Warfield, Bob Saget, uh, Arsenio Hall, incredible group of people. Ollie, wow. Ollie Joe Prater, Vic Dunlop, Bill Kirkenbauer. I mean, incredible group. Just wow. that year, Charlie Hill. Oh, man. Uh, Dave Tyree, the funniest wow. guy on this planet. And I mean, we all developed together. And ironically, Bob, Mitzi sent us over to Westwood to develop and be ready for sunset. Right. right? And then, sure enough, like you're, you're ahead of me, that room was so good and was so packed with young people. By the time two years went by, we were ready for the Tonight Show. Right. 
I, and the double punchline is we were ready for the Tonight Show before we were ready for Sunset. Because wow. the Sunset Room is tough. It is. And that Westwood Room was just giving and loving like the La Jolla Comedy Club is with brick walls and laughter bounces all over the place. You get to kind of strut between the jokes. At the Comedy Store Sunset in the original room, once that laugh is over, it is over. It's over. Because the walls are all padded with insulation and there's no ricochet at all. The main room's a different story, but the would original you, room is tough. Would you agree that the OR is probably the toughest room in the country? I mean, I've heard that. Yes, I, I, only because of the insulation. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with the lighting or the or the uh, or the acoustic. The, the, the ceiling height's perfect, but it's those walls. Yeah, those walls. It's the. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure. Whatever is in those walls for insulation shouldn't be there, <laughs> but it, it it just muffles everything. But but what it teaches you to do though. It teaches you to step right up to the next joke the instant that laugh dies down. Right. There is no lollygagging in the original yeah. room. Yeah, you got to be on your game. Yeah. That's. But, but you, you do about 30% more material in the original room than you would anywhere else. Right. For the same 15 minutes. Right. And were you, was, um, was Gallagher um, part of your group? Because well, I know, I think he smashed the first watermelon at Westwood. Yes, he did. Uh, Gallagher was in that group. From the early 70s that first came to the comedy oh, okay. store. Gallagher was with Letterman and Leno, Mule Deer, Skip Stevenson, Elaine Boozler, Johnny Dark, Tom Dreesen, uh, Johnny Witherspoon. Uh, and then the ones that were really developed at the time, Kip Adada, You know, these guys, were, they were sharp. And they got there in 72. They were a different breed of cats. There was another group that came up from... New York in the late 60s to 1972 that were already developed from the improv in New York. Got they it. came out to L.A. because Johnny Carson moved his show to right. L.A. in 72. May of 72, the same month and year, the, t the comedy store opened. Wow. And that actually was a big thing for the comedy store. It, it was because automatically you had these guys migrating out like David Brenner, Steve Landsberg, mm -hmm. Jimmy J.J. Walker. You know, Richard Pryor gets a lot of credit for help building the comedy store. But the guy who really built it, because Pryor was here maybe two or three months a year. The guy that was here every weekend packing both the original room and Westwood was Jimmy Walker. Yeah. More than anyone else, the comedy store owes Jimmy Walker a debt of gratitude for all he did for us. Because he was starring in Good Times, which was on for seven years on yeah. CBS. Yeah. He was dynamite, Jimmy J.J. Walker. Well, he had... A fantastic act he had put together in New York. And not only did he do that and kill on the stage every night, but he allowed Jay Leno and David Letterman to stay in town by giving them $100 a week writing jobs for him. Wow. And the funny thing is, is Jimmy had this ironclad, iron-tight act, okay? And on Sunday nights, Jimmy Walker would stand on stage in the original room and read, read these cards that David Letterman and Jay Leno had written for him. And they would all be brilliant jokes. And he, Jimmy would read them, get the laugh, and just throw them over his shoulder and never use them again. <laughs> it was so funny. And, you know, and, and David was living across the street uh, where rent was $117 a month. And, oh, and it, it all worked out. That's fun. That's the rent? That was the rent across the street from the comedy store. Oh, my God. Because I moved into his apartment in 78, and they, they kept it there. And what would you say, like, if you think back, um, like, of all the years at the Comedy Store, and you see, you've seen a lot, uh -huh. right? It's like, and, a, and a lot has seen me, too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, like, what is, like, what is one of your favorite, uh, what's one of your favorite 
Comedy Store memories. Um, uh, the most gripping memory I had was during the strike. Uh. And in the strike of 1979, there were about six of us that stuck by Mitzi. My father uh, told me to remember who I am. You know, you know, we Hamiltons, we stand by the Queen. And uh, going 400 years back, yeah. I, I stood out there on the uh, on the sidewalk while the comics were picketing Mitzi for a month. Yeah. And I talked customers into coming through the picket line. And those guys were my friends out there. But I, I did it as a gentleman, as the book says, uh, I'm Dying Up Here. That was right. an HBO series for two years. Yeah. They said Argus was the gentleman, so I take that as a compliment. Yeah, that's amazing. That, how that was the most gripping thing. How, many, how long was that? Was it a whole month? It lasted about five or six weeks. Ah. And speaking of money, um, the conditions of the strike, Mitzi had always looked at the comedy store as a college. Right. As a college where you showcase and you got hired by the industry. The comedy store was the gatekeeper to fame and fortune because that's back when you remember listeners, there were only three networks. Right. And there was one comedy store and all of the buyers, the agents and the managers came to the comedy store to choose their comics and give them development deals. And if the development deal sold, they would have their sitcom or their talk show and it would all, or movie deal, and it would all unfold naturally because it was so organized. Yeah. Not like 400 TV channels like there are now. Right. It's, it's, it's the Wild West now. But back then it was very tightly organized and Mitzi was the gatekeeper. And when the only people that were paid were people like me who were her runner and the MC and the greeters and the doorman. I did all four. You were a runner? Uh, I, was a, I was a runner. <laughs> I was the one that ran all over town and yeah. got all the paint and the stuff for the main yeah. room that she renovated for $50,000 in 1976. Wow. Mitzi was so funny. She would hand me her checkbook and her driver's license. And I would go around to these stores that knew her, okay, yeah. and would take it. Then I would hand him Mitzi's driver's license to validate the check, let's say for like 100 pan cans of paint. Right. And they would look at Mitzi's driver's license, and in pencil, she had scratched out her birth year because it was none of their business. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and, and so uh, I was a runner and her doorman and her and MC, and, and, the, and we all got paid and made a good living. Plus, the tips were fantastic, especially when prior, you know. Oh, wow. Loaded. The tips were amazing. So we did just fine, but the rest of the comics were having to showcase. Right. And Mitzi felt they would showcase more and work more if, if it was a college deal where nobody got paid. Right. It's a showcase club. Uh, a couple of times we argued otherwise, and in probably the biggest moment of the comedy store history, in June of 1978, it was about 2.30 or 3 in the morning, and Biff Maynard and I were sitting in the main room with Mitzi. She was really sad because she couldn't get any of her peers to play the main room, her peers being Don Rickles, right. Buddy Hackett, all that group of people that she came up with in the 1950s mm -hmm. with Sammy. Right. And their agents would not allow them to play the main room because it, they said it would hurt their Vegas draw. Wow. And they were all living off their Vegas money at that time. Even right. Shecky Green, all of them. And she didn't know what to do. And Biff and I convinced her that she had a group of comics. You mentioned Gallagher, all these guys that were great, all the group before me, they were ready. They were starting to do The Tonight Show in 78. They were fantastic. So you've got guys that will fill this place up. And she says, no, I'll have to pay them. This is a professional room. So what? Let this be the professional room. Make this the next step up. And we finally talked her into doing it. And... 
there was some disagreement about the pay. Tom Dreesen organized all the comedians to uh, demand that the main room comedians get their money. Mitzi agreed, and then the rest of the comedians who were Sunset Original and Westwood comedians said to Dreesen, what about us? Right. Uh, this was a famous confrontation at Fairfax when Marshall Warfield and Brad Sanders came up to Tom and said, you all, you all got taken care of, what about us? And I believe Dreesen realized that he'd recruited an army to do the work of a regiment. Right. And he, and he was stuck with this army on his hand. And so the strike began, and two weeks into the strike, speaking of the money, uh, the guy who would eventually co-own the uh, improv um, and I met next door at the Hyatt House. Yeah, Mark Lano. Yeah. Mark Lano and I met secretly next door in the middle of the strike next door at the Hyatt House and hammered out what the current pay is now. Okay. And so we went back, got Mitzi to agree, and she was sitting at the window watching the strikers that night because we knew it was going to be over soon. And then all the strikers started singing the Tonight Show theme. Well, what had happened was, was that David Letterman was pulling in, Letterman was pulling up the Hyatt ramp in his truck, and he had just guest hosted his first time oh, wow. on the Tonight Show. And everybody was wondering, what's David going to do? Is he going to join the strikers, or is he going to be loyal to Mitzi, who talked him out of going back to Indiana a few years earlier when he got discouraged? Right. And he joined the strikers. Wow. And it crushed Mitzi. Yeah. And it took Mitzi out of the realm for a couple of weeks of even negotiating with the strikers. Uh, she got a huge offer from Glendale Federal Bank to buy the entire kit and caboodle. And a few of us convinced her not to do that. She'd Thank just goodness. be another rich Jewish lady at the tennis club. Right. <laughs> yeah. And she would have not actually been happy with that. Not at all. <laughs> she was a good tennis player, too. <laughs> wow. So that's, yeah, that was a crazy. Yeah. Must have been a crazy time. But uh, I know this show is about money. And um, I just want to, uh, to address people in their 20s about yeah. what I've learned about it. Okay, cool. Okay? And this comes from my experience from having a lot of it when I was well and, and when I wasn't so well. Okay? Yeah. And I want to warn people in their 20s that, that, that when you accumulate a lot of money, it is not going to erase your character defects. It's going to underline them. Right. Okay? And if you've got a drug problem now, you just wait till you're rich. <laughs> if you've got women problems now, wait until you see the women you attract when you've got $10 million. Right. Because those women are sharper than you are, and they will nail you good in this town. I mean, it's, it's just like a rabbit attracting... Uh, a coyote, you know, if yeah. the moment you get money, if you aren't prepared to handle it responsibly and, and sock it away where no one can get their hands on it, starting with you. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, to your point, I think that a lot of people aren't prepared for success. Um, and I think that's why there's so many problems in Hollywood, whether it's actors or comics, uh, you know, all of a sudden they get this newfound success that they're just not emotionally prepared for. Well, I had an inner gyroscope, Bob. After my first Tonight Show shot in 1980, I was offered the moon. Okay? Absolutely everything. Movie deals at Universal, TV deals at Lord Lou Grade, NBC holding deal. My joke is uh, 
they turned down the, the show they gave me the money for. Uh, it's called Comedians in Cars Doing Blow. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, uh, they offered me everything. And this inner gyroscope told me to stick the stand up and, and to turn this all down. Because now I can see that at my level, at night, when I was 26, 27 years old, if I'd been given all that money for myself, or, you know, my dad was handling my other money, but if I was given all that money, Mitzi advised me against it because she, she said, like, Robin, making $50,000 a week is going to kill you, Argus. You know? Yeah. And, and she would have been right. Yeah. And so, because that's what Robin was, was making over at Mork and Mindy, and he barely got out of town alive. Yeah. <laughs> he barely did. Wow. And so... Um, I, I turned it down to st stick to stand-up. And, um, and when all my peers got their shows and they attracted the wife and then they attracted the kids, which attracted the private school fees, which attracted the divorce attorneys, which attracted the cancellation, right. and then now what? Okay? <laughs> and, you know, comic after comic after comic had that five years of, hey, look at me. And now they're wishing they'd stuck to the comedy store. Yeah. And there's no room at the end for them. Yeah. So if you look back, no regrets. Absolutely none. Yeah. Um, I'm the luckiest human being you ever saw. Yeah. Because I always had Mitzi and Peter and Polly and Sandy and Scotty by yeah. my side. Because that family, you know, not only saved my life, you know, they uh, they gave me a life. Yeah. No. It's a, it's a life I can give to the audience every night now. Yeah. No, that is... That's cool. I, you know, I think the part I'm hearing is that, uh, see, I've been fortunate. I made sure I never had lots of money. Right. So that I didn't have to, you know, get underlined. <laughs> it would have done it. If, if you have any ism whatsoever, uh, money will underline it and bring you down. So sock it away, kids. Put it out of your reach. And by the time you're 50, you'll know what to do with it. Yeah, that makes sense. Let me ask you this. If you look back... Um, I'm wondering, because you've got a lot of positive beliefs around money and beliefs and just going for life. Yeah. Um, do, do you, are there any money blocks? Are there any places where you um, remember that, like, uh, this is a place where I self-sabotage or uh, anything like that? Like, I didn't save enough or? No, it's, it's quite the reverse. If, if, I, if I'm able to give five bucks to the homeless guy I know at the Pavilion's grocery store, or if I keep up my tithe at the church, you know, if, if I tithe 10%, it's amazing all the one-night corporate gigs that come ringing on the telephone. It's no doubt about it. So to the young investor that's listening to your podcast, Bob, I would say, uh, remember the old preacher's analogy about uh, the water in the Middle East. It goes down from the Golan Heights in the snow and this beautiful pure water into the Jordan River, which flows into the Sea of Galilee, which is the freshest water in the world. And it flows down, still fresh, into the Dead Sea, where nothing can live. And the reason it dies in the Dead Sea is because it stopped giving. It's stuck there. Mm. Okay? And so if, I would say that if you want to be wealthy, make the purpose of your wealth to help other people. Yeah. Because if you're helping other people, you're emulating... The advice I got from my grand sponsor in the program, who is perhaps the greatest man ever in AA in Los Angeles, uh, Richard Chamberlain's father, oh, the actor, wow. Chuck Chamberlain. Wow. Chuck Chamberlain died in 1984, one of the wealthiest men in Los Angeles. 
40 years after he'd been completely broke, busted, disgusted in Beverly Hills. Okay. And he made a fortune in sobriety, helping, uh, converting all these uh, family markets into supermarkets in the 1950s and 60s. Okay. Wow. All right. And using his principles he learned in recovery, he advised everybody who's out there to make money to never look at somebody as a customer. Look at somebody you, you can help. He would say, like, if you're the customer, Bob, he would say, I'm not here to sell you anything. I'm here to help you. Right. If I can help you, what can I do to help you? And if if I can't help you, we're both busy. Right. And with that attitude, they would come up together with things that they could share to to make it a better, turn a a market into a supermarket, feed more people, and make it a better world. Yeah, that's great. And and what would you tell... Uh, a young creative person that wants to be a stand-up comic, an actor, a musician, a painter, what would you tell those creative folks that where some people are saying, don't waste your time and be practical? And what would you say to somebody that's trying on the cusp of trying to decide, do I go practical or do I go passion? I would, I would completely change friends and stick with the ones who encourage your inner gyroscope that tells you you have something artistic to contribute to this world. Stop listening, even if it's your parents. Just make it a taboo subject. And you stick with your friends on Melrose or or at the open mic nights here at the store. You stick with the artistic crowd. And together, you will give each other more work than any agent or manager ever did. Find a peer group. And for the young comedians, this is your task. Your job is to bomb until you are (laughs) bomb-proof. All right? That's what it may take two years, but this is, this is tougher than marine basic training. Yep. And there is no way you're going to make it unless you're bomb-proof. You'll be a little opener or feature the rest of your life as long as you only, if you're only willing to accept positive feedback. <laughs> now, I never learned anything from a killer set. Yeah. All right? and, uh, and the other thing I can tell them, make, if you're stuck for material, think about the AA fourth and fifth step. You tell that crowd your fears. You tell that crowd your secrets. You tell that crowd your resentments. And that crowd will bond to you like glue. Yeah. Because they have the same ones you do. Exactly. And be honest. Because remember, that audience is the best friend you're ever going to have in your life. So always tell them the truth about you and your life and whatever your, your subject of interest is. Yeah. I love it. Well, Argus, I am so grateful to have you on the show tonight. Uh, it's, it's just I love the stories. I love that you've got all this history and knowledge. And uh, where can we find you? Uh, let's see. Beverly Hills AA is 6 o'clock. No. <laughs> no uh, Drinks on you. Uh, no. Yeah, absolutely. They are at the, at the Comedy Store most nights at 9.15, uh, the, the main room on the weekend. But I want everybody listening, if you will, go on YouTube. 7 o'clock Tuesday night, we stream live. My show that started about two months ago called The Comedy Store Tonight, starring Argus Hamilton. I do an opening monologue that uh, we writers put together. Fantastic staff we have uh, in audio and, and video. We have the great producer Michael G. Nathanson in charge of the project, Oscar-winning producer. Mm-hmm. And this show is going to go places. So YouTube it or, or watch it live stream Tuesday nights at 7, The Comedy Store Tonight, starring Argus Hamilton. And uh, I guarantee you, we have a lot of fun. I interview two comedians, opening monologue, a lot of funny stuff the writers do in between. And uh, we're, we're on our way. Wow. Well, come check it out. Come check out Argus. And uh, again, this is Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
Uh, you can down us, download us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Until next time, thanks.